Welcome to episode six of Explore History's podcast, The Medieval Knight, Chivalry, and the Modern World. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and I would like to begin by thanking you for taking part in this little journey of ours. In this episode, we will examine two things which have been associated with the medieval knight, the tournament and the crusades. Both are topics which we would spend, we could spend a great deal of time on, particularly the Crusades, a most complex and important subject which has significant implications to this day. So our discussion will be very much a quick overview, but one that I hope touches upon a number of key developments related to both the medieval knight's role in medieval society and the growing importance of the concept of chivalry. Most anyone with even a cursory understanding of medieval society will be at least somewhat familiar with jousting and other activities associated with the medieval tournament. I guess the place to start here is to ask a simple question. What was a tournament? What sorts of things would you expect to see taking place? When I think of tournaments, I think of the clash of swords, knights on horseback, running at each other, the splintering of lances, a lot of flags and pomp and pageantry, people sitting you know, on, on benches watching one knight against another. But the reality is that that's not really what the tournament was all about, at least not at the start. Tournaments began at the same time that the concepts of knighthood were taking shape, in the mid-11th to mid-12th century, with the first mention of a tournament being in 1100. By 1125, tournaments were popular in France, particularly in northern France. There are numerous references to people going off to tournaments. Galbera Bruges tells of Count Charles the Good of Flanders, who, quote, frequented the tournaments in Normandy and France, and outside that kingdom too, and so kept his knights exercised in time of peace, and extended thereby his fame and glory and that of his country. This quote provides a number of important clues regarding the function of the tournament. It was all about exercise. When you're not at war, it kept everybody in shape, kept them their sword arms strong. It was about experience, hone their skills, keep them practicing. And of course, it was about fame and glory. They therefore appear to have had a recognizable function in society. But not all were happy with them, though. As early as 1130, Pope Innocent II had condemned them. But they continued to grow in popularity, and by the 1150s, tournaments were being held as far away as Syria in this case by the Byzantine emperor Manuel Comanus. He himself took part. The reason the church was against them was because of their destructive nature. In Saxony, in one year, 16 knights were killed in tournaments. And the reason is that in its earliest form, the tournament was not what it would come to resemble in the 14th and 15th centuries, a tournament that most of us are familiar. It was almost like a real battle. And so initially, tournaments were known as the melee, a melee which is basically just a free-for-all. A site would be chosen, there were no lists, only a few safe havens, so you may have a, a huge area, a large field, and maybe a couple trees, and those trees would act as a safe haven that people could go to if they were injured or knocked off their horse. Participants divide into two teams. You might have the French versus the Angevins, or in England, north versus south. The earliest sources don't mention a referee or judges, and for that matter, they don't mention rules. Principal weapons were lances and swords. Prisoners were taken and held to ransom. Their horses and armor were considered legitimate spoils. Chrétien Detroit describes one such engagement in this way. Quote, On either side, the ranks tremble and a roar rises from the fight. The shock of lances is very great. 
Lances break and shields are riddled. The hauberks receive bumps and are torn asunder. Saddles go empty and horsemen tumble, while the horses sweat and foam. Swords are quickly drawn on those who fall noisily, and some run to receive the promise of a ransom, others to stave off disgrace. So tournaments in their earliest form were not unlike actual war. They were extremely violent affairs where rivalries could be pursued and casualties could be heavy. Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex, was trampled to death in 1215. Florence, Count of Holland, was killed in 1223, and his son was killed in 1234. His brother in 1238. It's a rather unlucky family that should have stopped doing tournaments. Robert of Claremont, brother of Philip III of France, sustained a head injury in 1279 that left him incapacitated for the rest of his life. We therefore see that by the later 13th and 14th centuries, there were efforts to make them less ferocious, more restricted. So we begin to hear in the records of judges, the use of non-metal weapons, and individual jousts become popular. What we see is that tournaments were becoming more ceremonial, but at the same time, they were becoming more expensive. Knights were expected to spread the wealth to heralds, minstrels, grooms, squires, armorers, and most everyone else. They did this as it gained them honor and recognition. It opened doors and could increase their wealth through prize money and work with more powerful lords looking for an experienced knight. We see this in the relationship between tournaments and the Crusades. Tournaments were often linked to the organization and recruitment for crusades. But as a tournament evolved and focused upon the single combat of one knight against another, it became more and more a form of theater, a social gathering, an entertainment or sport where people could meet and celebrate the values of chivalry. In an age before mass media, tournaments were the diffusion points for the culture of chivalry. So it's a place where people could gather. They could be entertained. They could watch great feats of strength and uh, through the jousting, the sword fighting and so on that was taking place. They could make connections. They could maybe find work. All sorts of things were taking place. And what they were also doing by sort of codifying um, the whole process of the tournament was they were making it more acceptable. They were making it less violent um, and more controlled, not unlike you know, modern football in the 19th century, which is extremely violent. Um, and you start to see referees and pitches and things. And that happened in a lot of sports in the 19th century. Um, and so this is to give it some sort of co construct, some control. And this was taking place in the med medieval period with the tournament. So one of the things this tells us is that there was a real need to control the violence of this period, to control the violence that we see in the tournament and how many of the great knights, these great lords that were taking part, could maybe play off against each other and take advantage of the situation. And that relates very much to what we see in our next topic, the Crusades. These two things are very much linked, as I just suggested. In the year 1095, Pope Urban II received an appeal from the Eastern Roman Empire, which would change the course of Western European history. Pope Urban told his council that, quote, a grave report has come from the lands around Jerusalem, from the city of Constantinople, a people from the kingdom of the Persians, a foreign race, 
a race absolutely alien to God, has invaded the land of those Christians, has reduced the people with sword, rapine, and fire, and has carried off some of us as captives to its own land, has cut down others by pitiable murder, has either completely razed churches of God to the ground or enslaved them to the practice of its own rights. In response, on 27th November 1095, Pope Urban launched the First Crusade to liberate the Holy Land. Pope Urban's appeal spread fast, so fast that one contemporary argued that there was no need for preaching. In France, Italy, southern and western Germany, large numbers of men, women, and even children came forward. Now, the First Crusade that we're talking about here can be divided into three separate waves. The first wave saw, and these numbers are very greatly, and there's no agreement on them in particular, but probably 25 to 45,000 people. Conservative estimates for the second wave is about 43,000. The total for all three waves of the First Crusade is estimated to be between 90 and 100,000 people, about 7,000 of which were knights. Many more took up the cross, but in the end did not go. Well, why did so many go? One, there was severe population pressure in Europe, with many being denied opportunity due to marriage and inheritance practices. Crusade was often seen by some as a kind of a colonial adventure. It was an opportunity the lure of conquest in new lands, to escape bad harvests and hardship, and for many, I think, to have a new beginning. For others, it was out of religious devotion, and for others still, to acquire wealth. The great majority of crusaders who went returned home after Jerusalem had been liberated, so the argument has been made that many may have gone for reasons other than acquiring wealth, so they went for religious devotion. But many of those returning may have initially intended on staying, but simply found life there too unbearable. We do know that crusade could be an expensive business. Some families taking on considerable burdens so that others, such as knights in the family, could go. It's estimated that for a knight to go on crusade, it required as much as four years' income. Another reason people went was pressure from the church. Pressure from the church to reform society, to halt the spread of violence, was significant. So there was real pressure to send younger sons on crusade because they were the ones that were spending all this time fighting around Europe, and often the ones that were taking part in tournaments. Early preaching also played upon ideals of obligation, the protection of family and community. Jesus and Jerusalem threatened or destroyed. Christians must unite to protect. And also an extension of papal power and control. With this was an increased sense that Christian Europe was under siege. One sermon, I quote, said, I address fathers and sons and brothers and nephews. If an outsider were to strike any of your kin down, would you not avenge your blood relative? How much more out of you to avenge your God? The Turks, who inflicted much dishonor on our Lord Jesus Christ, have been taken and killed, and we Jerusalemites have avenged the injury to the supreme God Jesus Christ. Now, the first wave was led by an unlikely figure, in, at least in part, by Peter the Hermit. This is popularly known as the Peasants' or People's Crusade. Peter the Hermit traveled around France gathering followers and gained widespread support. By April 1096, he was ready to lead his Peasants' Crusade. All the common people, the chaste as well as the sinful, adulterers, homicides, thieves, perjurers, and robbers entered upon the expedition. Added to this list were knights, petty nobles, clerics, women, and children. The knights rode, but the rest of Peter's army, 25,000 strong, were content to walk, the 3,000 miles. There was a great deal of fighting and looting along the way, in large part because this vast 
group of people had to forage for food, and it caused massive disruption to the kingdoms they passed through. Once in Asia Minor, the force split through internal bickering and was for the most part annihilated. The second wave began to leave Western Europe in August of the same year. There were a number of different groups traveling, each under the leadership of a great magnate. These leaders spent much of their time just trying to control their followers, who often seemed more interested in wreaking havoc on the kingdoms that they passed through along the way. Once at Constantinople, the Crusaders found themselves in a difficult struggle for power with the Byzantine Emperor, who appeared to only want to use the Crusaders to meet his own personal objectives. There was therefore considerable disillusionment on the part of Crusade leadership, and from this time forward most distrusted the imperial government in Constantinople. Despite disease, supply shortages, internal conflict, and very little support from Byzantium, the Crusaders experienced positive results. They advanced through Asia Minor and into Syria. Their timing was excellent as there had been a considerable conflict between rival Arab dynasties in the region, and therefore they didn't have to face one large coordinated attack. After much trial and tribulation, they arrived before Jerusalem in 1098, and within three weeks had taken the city. After this victory, most crusaders decided to return home. From 1099 to 1100, triumphant crusaders returned to Europe, news of the liberation of Jerusalem sweeping across the continent. In the general euphoria that followed, new armies were raised and a third wave of crusaders left for the east. The third wave saw armies as large as the previous waves, although this crusade was different, that it contained a stronger ecclesiastical contingent, and even princes of very high rank. In 1100, armies from France, Lombardy, Germany, and Burgundy arrived in the newly controlled Christian territories, and this control was solidified. So this first crusade was important on a number of accounts. First of all, it represented a new outlet for European expansion and energy. It provided some peace in Europe, as many of the unruly knights and the kingdoms that were continuously fighting amongst themselves now had another outlet for their aggression. Secondly, it provided Europeans with a common cause, providing the basis for the formation of a European identity. And third, it established feudal states run by Norman crusaders in the Middle East. There was minor crusading activity in the years 1101 to 1120, focused upon the Balearic Islands and the east coast of mainland Spain. From 1120 to 1150, we see the papacy actively attempt to gain control of the crusading movement. There were appeals for help from the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which was coming under increased Muslim pressure. And in 1146, the Second Crusade was launched. The Second Crusade included Saxons from Germany crusading not just in the Middle East, but against the pagan Wends in the northeast of Europe. In this crusade, St. Bernard encouraged that the Saxons should continue, quote, until such a time as with God's help, either their religion or nation shall be wiped out. Five armies converged on the east. Four more took the field in northeastern Europe. There were four separate campaigns in the Iberian Peninsula. Despite this great show of force, the Second Crusade was a failure. His failure ushered in a 40-year period where Christian Europe appeared demoralized and there were no further attempts at crusade apart from a few small expeditions. But still, Jerusalem and most of the area conquered remained in Christian hands. But from 1157 till 1212, the Christian territories were forced onto the defensive. By 1187, there were few towns on the Palestinian coast in Christian hands due to the successes of Saladin. In October of 1187, Jerusalem itself 
fell to Saladin. Although it should be noted that as a general rule, he treated his prisoners much better than the European crusaders. The fall of Jerusalem shocked medieval Europe once again, and it resulted in a call for another crusade. This third crusade would have a dramatic impact upon England and the Angevin Empire. Uh, Henry II's son, Richard, had long dreamt of going on crusade. When the opportunity presented itself, he did not waste any time. He just wasted everything else. Richard was crowned king on September 3, 1189, and immediately set about preparing for a crusade. King Richard I had two main concerns. First, how to prepare the kingdom for his absence, and secondly, how to raise enough money to go on crusade. Each had its difficulties. In order to prepare the kingdom, Richard released many of his father's enemies from jail, he allowed his brother John back into England, he appointed bishops in other episcopal positions, he appointed Bishop Hugh of Durham and William de Mandeville uh, as joint justiciars. Neither of the two men appear to be good choices for the position of justiciar, the most important position in the realm, yet their choice reflects much of Richard's main concern, which was the crusade. He put a great deal more effort into raising the funds for his crusade than he did for the welfare of England when he was away. Richard was crowned on September 3rd. On September 5th, he received the homage of the bishops, earls, and barons. And then Roger Howden relates, he, quote, put up for sale everything he had. It is reported that Richard later remarked, I would have sold London itself if I could have found a buyer. His object was to raise as much money as possible for his crusade, and he went about doing it in the most direct way possible. He sold lands, offices, privileges, castles, titles, whole towns were sold off. He also put into effect the Saladin tithe, a tax of one-tenth of everyone's income, all of their movable goods, apart from precious stones, a knight's arms and horses, and clerics' horses and books. All else was taxed. Pope Clement III set Richard notice that he could free any one of his subjects from going on crusade if they preferred to remain and maintain the government of England. Richard had these men purchase permission to remain at home. Richard even made an agreement with William the Lion, King of Scots, which saw William agree to remain peaceful during Richard's absence. Richard freed William of the humiliating terms imposed on him by his father Henry II, but of course this was in return for a large sum of money. While Richard was raising the necessary funds, his officials set about making preparations for the crusade. Over 100 ships were assembled and loaded with an enormous supply of beans, salt pork and cheese, and 10,000 horseshoes. Shortly before the ship set sail, he paid the wages of 1,100 sailors for an entire year in advance. In other words, he spent a heck of a pile of money. Once ready, Richard left England for his continental territories, raising more money in ships and agreeing to share the plunder of Saladin's empire with Philip of France, who was also going on crusade. After an eventful stop at Sicily, Richard, with a fleet of 200 ships, headed for the coast of Palestine. On the way, he added the island of Cyprus to his kingdom, eventually landed on the Palestinian coast in time to take part in a siege that had been going on for two full years. Richard and his army had many successors, but were plagued by a lack of cooperation between the various crusading forces. By July of 1191, Philip of France had had enough of crusading. He left for home. Richard grew increasingly impatient with the many delays in marching on Jerusalem. And at one point, when Saladin failed to meet several of Richard's surrender conditions for a town that had been won, Richard had between two and 3,000 hostages executed in full view of Saladin's army. 
Richard found himself in a difficult position. After being on crusade for two full years, he had yet to reach Jerusalem. At one point, he was within 12 miles of the fabled city, only to have to retreat. At the same time, Richard was receiving news from England about his brother John's rebellious behavior and King Philip of France's intentions to invade Normandy. Clearly, Richard was needed at home, but he was also so close to his goal of winning Jerusalem. Certainly, such a victory would enrich him considerably and do much for his reputation back in Europe. However, victory was not to be. Richard took ill and, in October, left for England. As it turns out, his voyage home was as eventful as his crusade. Richard was shipwrecked in the Adriatic, captured by Duke Leopold of Austria, and held prisoner by the German Emperor Henry VI and ransomed for a vast amount of silver. This episode in the history of the Crusades was critical for the Kingdom of England on several accounts. Not only did Richard impoverish the kingdom through his extremely expensive crusade, but he also destroyed much of what his father, Henry II, had accomplished. In his rush to join the crusade, Richard had not put enough thought into the maintenance of his own kingdom, leaving it in very incapable hands. Richard left the kingdom in the hands of his two justiciars, and one of them, William Longchamp, was quick to seize control. Shortly after Richard's departure, Longchamp began consolidating his power, by 1191, he was supreme in church and state, and had only one real rival, Richard's brother John. Longchamp had acquired few friends through his actions, though, allowing John to rally support from among those who he had crossed. A plot was devised, and Longchamp was driven from the kingdom by force. With Longchamp out of the picture, John was recognized as regent, and recognized as Richard's heir, should Richard die without children. John then set about plotting against his brother with the ever-willing Philip of France without success. There was a general sigh of relief throughout the kingdom when it was discovered that Richard lay in a German prison. The ransom for Richard's release was raised, another expense to the kingdom, and upon his return John was forced to beg his mercy and forgiveness. Richard's death in 1199 caused more disturbance for the country, in large part because John had gained the throne, and he inherited an impoverished kingdom, and this would lead directly to all of the trials and tribulations around the development of the Magna Carta. So what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, we learned that at this time, medieval Europe was plagued by conflict. England was in conflict with the French monarchy and lost continental territories at this time. There was conflict with the papacy, struggles for power between church and state. There was struggles between different English barons. We see this play out with the Magna Carta. We see religious conflict, an invigorated mistrust and hatred between Muslim and Christian, where previously there was toleration. Crusades also provide us with an important glimpse into many different aspects of medieval society. We can see some medieval attitudes come out, the deep religious conviction that many held. You think about women and children, families deciding to walk 3,000 miles through unknown countries into unknown landscapes against unknown terrors. I mean, it just kind of boggles the mind. We see that the general level of violence was prevalent and an accepted part of society. And this was something which a good argument has been made that was in part related to the Crusades. It was a way to get these, these particularly the younger sons that were trying to you know, make a living through nefarious activities and through violence, get them off to the Crusades. They could fight there, but not in Europe. It also tells us a lot about the true nature of many knights, even kings like England's Richard the Lionheart. 
we may look at them as these chivalrous knights. That might be the persona that they had. But the reality, when you look at the records, when you look at some of the deeds that they did, particularly in the Holy Land, they were far from chivalrous. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to this episode six. Uh, we'll continue with the next one. Um, we're going to be moving into more the, the modern part of the uh, this series uh, very shortly. So I'll be looking at that where we'll look at the Tudors and the Stuarts, and we'll be bringing this analysis right up to the 20th century and see how this concept of chivalry as it evolved in the medieval period had a, a great influence upon events in the modern world.